Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Um, Since February, apart from Easter, we've been in a series entitled All Things New, a study on the gospel, sanctification, and everyday life in Christ. The title of our series comes from Revelation 21, verse 5. I hope a verse that many of you have memorized now, also where it's from, Revelation 21, verse 5, where Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. Oh, I'm seeing a sign that says, Apex, send them out. Or you're just trying to get my attention. Yes, Apex, grade 6, 7, 8, get out to your own thing. Sorry about that. Have fun. Enjoy it. Uh, thank you to our Apex leaders who are serving. Thank you, Simon, for that interesting... We should have, like, flags back there. <laughs> Flagging system. That would be good. I like that. Okay, sorry. Okay, back to this. Hi, friends. So, yes. Our series title, All Things New, comes from Jesus' words in Revelation 21, verse 5, where Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. I won't review where we've been. <laughs> because we've been in this since February. You can go back and listen to it. I think it's been an important series. It has been for me. But this morning, as, I, as we dive into this one last time, I want to simply affirm one thing, that this series was born out of two things. A real hope and a real need. First and foremost, the real hope that Jesus' words in Revelation 21 verse 5 are true. Inviting us, you and me, every one of us, into a life of honest discipleship to Jesus that brings not simply a reshuffling of our habits, but the reordering of our hearts, of our affections, our passions, our thoughts, our will, who we are. Behold, I am making all things new. So Jesus says in Matthew 4, 19, the beginning of the Gospels, he says to us, come follow me, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men and women. I will transform you into something you are presently not. I will make you into a vessel of my life for the world. That is the invitation of Jesus, and it is true. That is our hope. And it's a hope that has inspired this series, a hope that is, speaks to our real need, every one of us, our real need for sanctification, for God's redeeming work in the deep places of our lives, which we long for, do we not? Every Christian alive today longs to not be a story of another faith that went, that disappeared, that failed, that abandoned, an unchanged heart who carries religious practices but otherwise is the same unchanged. No, Jesus speaks to our heart's deep need our lives, deep need for God's redemptive work in the deep places of our lives, the ongoing renewal of our minds and our desires and our hearts, our affections, our habits, our will, the uprooting of sin's grip in our lives and the planting, the watering, the nurturing of God's life and God's desires in us over time as we follow Jesus. 
And not just at the outset when you're young and maybe fresh to Jesus, but down through all the decades because anyone who's been through a few decades can say, we keep needing it, don't we? And this morning on our last Sunday in the series, we come to a theme that I've had on my horizon from the start and long before, a topic that I knew we needed to spend some time on, but maybe felt a bit uneasy to address because it's so personal, it's so complicated, it's so hard to make sense of. Though undeniably essential to the larger context of Jesus' words in Revelation 21 verse five and to the everyday fabric of our lives. Sometimes when I preach, I imagine that I am meeting you on the shore of some waters that we need to get out on. And my task is to rally us to the access point to some vessel and to take you out on a journey into waters that we need to enter into in the hope that we will ultimately end up somewhere different, maybe unexpected, or that we'll find ourselves back where we started, but maybe with a deeper, fresher awareness of God's presence right there, God's mercy and grace where we are. But sometimes preaching feels like rowing out into the deep waters and doing all I can just to find you where you are, hoping, praying, to somehow either help you find your way back to God's shore or to help you find hope that God's rescue is coming or maybe simply to help you know that God is right there in the deep waters with you and that we're with you. And if I'm honest, that's what today's text feels like and theme feels like for me. It feels like rowing out in the deep waters to find some of you or maybe, and maybe, a bit of myself as well. Um, if you were to look at my page in front of me, you'd see that I've titled this morning's message, The Hard Thing About Sanctification, which might make some of you think, okay, so what is it? What is the hard thing? <laughs> but that's exactly it. According to Jesus in the Bible's overwhelming witness and teaching, the hard thing about sanctification is that it often involves the hard things. Which if I'm honest, I wish it didn't. But I'm also so thankful it does. That God's deep, renewing, reconciling, transforming, restoring work in us involves the hard things. Struggling with hard things. Persevering through hard things. Dane Ortland, a wise Christian teacher, I've been reading one of his books this past year, a few of his books actually, but this one comes from um, his book called Deeper, Real Change for Real Sinners. He says, our natural instincts tell us that the way forward in the Christian life is by avoiding pain so that undistracted we get, can get down to the business at hand of growing up in Christ. The New Testament tells us again and again, however, that pain is a means, not an obstacle to deepening in Christian maturity. Pain is a means, not an obstacle, to deepening in Christian maturity. The hard thing about sanctification is that it often involves the hard things. Suffering, pain, sorrow, grief, 
Disappointments, tensions, opposition, complicated relationships, fractured family setbacks, roadblocks, catastrophes, anxiety, frustration, isolation, sickness, crippling conditions, whether physical, mental, emotional, or all three or more, injustice, persecution, trial. Maybe you could include on that list being a mom. (laughs) Hard things. Some unfathomable things. And as Dane Ortland wisely describes, often without our permission. It's just a brief line in his beautiful book on sanctification, Deeper, but it has rung out to me so profoundly that there is much pain in our lives and in our world that comes without our permission. In truth, hardship is unavoidable. We all experience pain in our lives in some ways, if not in countless ways. Whoa. That's a life lesson for all of us. May the Lord bless you, Mark. That was great. You know, sometimes you get a little ring, but that was an experience. Oh, man. Ah, I will always remember that. Okay, you already all know this is not a Mother's Day sermon, right? I don't do Mother's Day sermons. But maybe it is a little bit too, right? Because being a mother involves pain, doesn't it? And not just in childbirth, but in raising another while you are in process yourself. Truth is, we all experience pain in life. We all do. And knowing Christ, following Jesus, does not mitigate or do away with this. In truth, it can at times intensify it. Why? Because the Bible tells us the story of the world. The Bible tells us the story that makes sense of the world, makes sense of God's dream for the world and for us. And this, these things I've named, these things that your heart has named, this is not what God's dream is. This isn't it. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Cancer, infertility, vocational disappointments, anxiety, wayward children, wayward parents, unwanted affections, grinding poverty, gender dysphoria, broken vows, overwhelming loneliness, systemic racism, elder abuse, and more and more. This is not the way things are supposed to be. This is not God's dream for humanity. And knowing this can make it even harder at times. But with that too, in the gospel, God has revealed his heart to us. In Jesus, above all, God has revealed, opened his heart to us. His mercy, his goodness, his kindness, his compassion, his power and glory. And so that when the waves of the curse crash against us as they do, or worse, sometimes seem to flood our lives as they do at times, it is no wonder that our hearts break as women and men who are following Jesus. It is no wonder that we cry out as God's people that we ache. This is not the way it's supposed to be. But thankfully, thankfully, God's, the gospel rose out to us. The gospel rose out to us into the fury of the storm itself with comfort and hope that can sustain us in a number of ways. I'm sure there are many, but this morning I just want to name 
a few ways that I have experienced the God of the gospel rowing out to me in the dark things, the hard things of my life in this last year, in the last few years, last few decades, and the lives of others that I've walked with. And I hope that today, I know some of you think, oh, this wasn't what I wanted for today, but I wonder if this is what you needed. And I hope today you will find something of God's mercy and grace here. I know for me this week, as I have prayed towards speaking today, as I sat Friday in my office, crafting what I would share, I unexpectedly wrote this message with my heart just like cracked open with, on the edge of tears the whole time for some of you, for others around me, and even for myself and things that I've walked through this year. I don't know if that matters to you, but I'm just saying it. So I just want to name a few ways that the gospel has ro rose out to us in the storm of when we feel the curse. First, there's a grace in how the gospel, the story of scripture, helps make sense of the brokenness of our world. The brokenness that we encounter and experience. There's a grace, I am convinced, there's a grace, a comfort in knowing that in the beginning, the world was filled with shalom, with joy, with blessing. Then the world as God made it, we don't find suffering, evil, shame, fear, and all the other things we've listed already. We don't find any of those things until sin invades the story. Until sin invades God's good and beautiful world. And there are a lot of questions that can come with this, but amidst that there's a comfort, I think, in knowing, there's a comfort for me in knowing that the source of the suffering and pain in our world is not the God who made the world, but it is the consequence of the fall. It's the fallout of humanity's ancient rebellion. And so we find ourselves in a world somewhat unhinged from the fullness of God's shalom. I've been reading a book about the costly obedience of celibate gay Christian men and women. The book is literally called Costly Obedience, written by Mark Yarhouse, a Christian psychologist, and a colleague, Olya, oh, I can't pronounce her last name. Costly obedience. And at one point, reflecting on how one individual had come to experience and accept the deep brokenness of the world. And this, remember friends, this is written by a celibate gay Christian man who's experienced a lot of suffering, a lot of struggle internally and externally in the world, in the church even. And he says... The fact that there is brokenness is not an indictment on God. If anything, the fact that there is brokenness is a reminder that we need the redemption that God brings, that we need the change that God offers, the healing and the restoration that God brings to the world. In a way, we, when we find ourselves ravaged by the pain of the curse, whatever that curse is, the gospel invites us to understand deep in our bones that God is not the enemy. God is not your enemy. He is our hope. He is our healer. He is our refuge. He is our comfort. He is our redeemer. Second, the gospel rose out to us in our pain with the news 
that because of Jesus, there is coming a day when as Revelation 21 verse four, one verse before our theme verse says, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have passed away. And let's be honest, this is a hope, the promise of God that many of us know, but that for whatever reason has never gripped some of us as truly good news, as a hope that truly matters. And I suspect that this was probably the case for me for many years, maybe because I hadn't experienced much suffering and hardship. But at this point in my life, like some of you, I have. At this point in my life, this is a truth that sings to me in the hard places. Because I have felt the brokenness of this world. I've sat with friends in the, the morning after a sexual assault by a coworker. I have spoken at a friend's funeral, burying his infant daughter after the most horrific tragic event. I have walked hand in hand with loved ones through seemingly unending seasons of suicidal ideation, pain that never leaves, marriage vows that have been abandoned by a partner. I have wept with friends in the ruins of abuse. And I have learned to listen with my heart open to the injustice of our world. In our day, in our land, and around the world, and down through the centuries, I have felt the sting of suffering and trial and chaos and opposition in my own life. I have been let go by a church and sent away for not teaching something others wanted. I have been, I have experienced my own sin and the own, my own consequences of my sin. I've been a pastor for almost 20 years now, September. I have been elder for longer than that. And so I have listened. I've sat in my living room and other people's living rooms and in the office on the other side of this room and I've listened to stories I never expected but that now I do expect to hear. And more and more, I have come to find true comfort in the knowledge that there is a day coming when things will no longer be as they are. When as Amos 5.24 declares, justice will roll like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream when the never again of Isaiah 65 will come to pass. Read Isaiah 65. It's actually part of what John, the writer of the Revelation, the book of Revelation is drawing from in some of what he says. Revelation 65 verse, sorry, Isaiah 65 verse 20 begins with these words, see, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. And then it says these words, never again, never again. Never again will injustice carry the day. Never again will a people be oppressed by another. Never again will a child live but a few days or a few years or be robbed of life so tragically. Never again will holy vows be broken. Never again will one nation obliterate another. Never again will addiction destroy a life and a family and hope. Never again will God's name be dishonored. Never again. Why? Because Jesus will reign in all and over all. In all and over all. Thank God. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Okay, but what about right here and right now? 
It is one thing to find hope and comfort in God's heart and character and original vision for the world. It is enough, and to look ahead with gratitude and hope for the kingdom come. But what about right here in the midst of the hard things when your life is burning before your very eyes? How does the gospel row out to us in the midst of the hard storms of our lives? Because it does, Jesus does in many ways, and two stand out to me today, two ways that are deep gifts to me in the hard things of the last season of my life and as I walk with friends through hell in their lives. First, the gospel announces us the grace that right now, right here, in this moment, in, in the moment of the season of the long journey of pain, God is not indifferent or removed from our pain, just the opposite, God is with us in the hard things. We hear this in scripture in so many places. God promises this. Isaiah 43 stands out to me this week. I ended up there this week, not because of my study, but just where God took me. As Isaiah 43, God promises, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the waters, and you will, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep you away. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. This is a promise many of us know and cling to. But there is a deeper comfort here that is calling out to me in these days. That I don't think we're often alert to. The gospel tells us that the God who is with us in the fire, the storm, the river, the waters, the God who is with us in the hard things is the crucified one, the Lamb of God slain for the world. This is the God who is with you in your suffering. Think about that. The God who is with you in the hard things of your life is the God whom the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 verse three describes as a man of suffering and familiar with pain. And then the next verse Isaiah says of God's suffering servant, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. This is the God who is with us in our suffering. That's why I asked Simon a few months back if we could learn and sing that new song that I just heard called Son of Suffering. When I heard it, when I asked him, I just heard it two days before in worship at a pastor's conference in Vancouver, standing beside a friend going through a world of grief. The kind of grief that makes it hard to sing in church. The kind of grief that makes it hard to sing along with many of today's popular worship songs about the goodness of God. And I'll be honest, I was tired. I had not slept the night before much. I stayed in a really crummy hotel room and I snore a bit. So I was nervous that I'd keep the other person up. So I think I just didn't sleep. So I was tired, but also I was heavy. I was heavy with my friend's grief. And yet standing in this moment, as the band bursts into this new song, with my friend beside me, Carrying his burdens in my own soul, the words of this song, Son of Suffering, met me as good news. Oh, such good news, gloriously good news that my friend and I both needed, that you need, that we all need again and again. 
Listen to the lyric. Oh, the perfect son of God in all his innocence here walking in the dirt with you and me. He knows what living is. He is acquainted with our grief, a man of sorrows, son of suffering. According to the gospel, this is the God we worship. Blood and tears, how can it be that there's a God who weeps, that there's a God who bleeds? Oh, praise the one who would reach for me, hallelujah, to the son of suffering. We can sing about the goodness of God, and we must, we must. But when we are in the throes of hard things, the hard, the hardest things in our lives and our world, it is an astounding gift, a true comfort, a sustaining grace to know that the God who is with us is the God who weeps, a God who bleeds. Hallelujah to the son of suffering. And I want to linger on one other brilliant line in that song because it speaks a truth that we need to hear and take to heart today in this conversation and because of that again and again throughout our lives. We find the last line of the second verse which reads, to the sinner you were grace and the broken you embraced and in the end the proof is in your wounds. I think this is something we all at times need to hear and I say this because it is easy and understandable when we find ourselves up against the wall, facing the hard things, in a body that's failing, or a marriage that is so hard, or opposition that's coming at us, or things that are just falling apart, or whatever. In the midst of those things, facing the hard things, maybe on many fronts, to look at our lives and our wounds, our trials, our sufferings, and conclude that God must not truly love us, that God must not truly be for us, that God must not truly be with us. Look at my pain, look at my life, look at my suffering, look at my experience. And it is understandable and is not to be ignored. We all have these thoughts at times, but this song following the guidance of scripture and wise Christians down through the ages invites us to look elsewhere in the hard things to fix our eyes, not on our suffering, but on Jesus' suffering. To what Jesus has suffered for us on the cross, suffering he ensured with his full permission, right? I mentioned at the start that we often suffer often experience suffering without, it comes without our permission, which is not to minimize it, it is profound. But as the song rightly contends, in the end, the proof is in Jesus' wounds. The proof of God's love for us. God being for us. The proof is in his wounds, in what God in Christ has suffered willingly for us. For the joy set before him, that is the absurdity here the mystery of grace, for the joy set before him, the joy of reconciling, restoring us to himself and to his glory and his goodness, he endured the cross willingly. Reflecting on this very thought, Dane Ortland, in another brief portion in his book writes, if you are having thoughts like that as you hear about Christ's love, I want you to know that you're looking at the wrong life your life doesn't disprove God's, Christ's love. His life proves it. Your life doesn't disprove Christ's love. His life proves it. Your suffering 
doesn't disprove God's love, his suffering proves it. Which brings me to the final way that the gospel rose out to us in the midst of the hard things. And this is where we connect back to the larger context of Jesus' words in Revelation 21. Behold, I'm making all things new. We need to remember that those words were spoken to people who were in the throes of struggle, in the throes of persecution, vulnerability, suffering so deep the book of Revelation had to be written in a literary genre known as apocalyptic, meaning political code. The book of Revelation is full of metaphor and images. Why? Because it needed to sneak past the eyes and the ears of the Roman oppressors to be understood by the people in suffering, but not by those over them. So the book of Revelation is filled with images to disguise what God is revealing to the people that are hurting. That's who Revelation is written to. People that are suffering, trial, persecution, loss of life, loss of livelihood, opportunities shut down, injustice at every turn. And to them, in that place, God says, behold, I am making all things new. So it brings us back to what I said at the start. The hard thing about sanctification is that it involves the hard things. As I said again, as I said at the start, I wish it didn't, but I am so glad it does because we all experience hard things way more often than we would expect. And it's a gift to know that God's deep work in us, God's sanctifying, redeeming, sin-killing, life-giving work in us, conforming us into the likeness of Jesus, involves the hard things in our lives. Again, to go back to Dane Ortland's quote, our natural instinct tells us that the way forward into Christian life is by avoiding pain so that undistracted we can get down to the business at hand of growing up in Christ. The New Testament tells us again and again, however, that pain is not a means, sorry, pain is a means, not an obstacle to deepening in Christian maturity. Pain is a means, not an obstacle to deepening in Christian maturity, to growing in true Christ-likeness. To which those who've gone before us invite us to say, thank God. Thank God. Thank God that God uses the hard things in our lives. When something in our life goes south, our health, our work, a relationship, when others have made decisions that have huge implications for our lives and send us spinning, when a friend texts me on Thursday evening to say that his house is on fire, this happened this week to one of the most godly friends I have. Hey, by the way, I got a call from my neighbor. My house is on fire. When the hard things seem to mount up and overwhelm the good things or suck all the air out of the good things, I thank God. I thank God that the pain in our lives, the trials, the griefs, the disappointments, the sorrows, the setbacks, the detours, our sickness, our brokenness, and our experience of the brokenness of others isn't wasted. It isn't useless, pointless, meaningless, or even just passing. And I don't mean by that that we need to try to figure out what it means to try to have some answer for it. But what I mean is, as children of a loving father 
whose heart is revealed to us most clearly in Jesus, we are invited in the hard things to trust that our God, our crucified God, will use even this. I don't know how. I've sat with so many friends in this last year in the midst of hard things with no answers of why or how God will use this. But thankful that we can know and trust that he will, that somehow our God, our crucified God, will be and is at work even in the hard things, seeking to use even the trials of our lives as the means of his glory in us. It's the truth, a grace that we learn from many parts of scripture, but most famously from Romans 8.28, a text that I'm sure has already come to some of your minds, a familiar verse to many of us. I'm gonna read it for us. Writing to a community of Christians, again, who are deep in the throes of hard things, real and ongoing suffering, uncertainties, threats, at the close of a beautiful chapter on how God ministers to us in our suffering, Paul writes these famous words, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And in the next verse, Paul clarifies what God's purpose is, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. And I know as I read that, and as you hear it, some of us want to inwardly scream out or slip out the door or we're staying in our seats, but we have. Because of how this verse seems to imply or explicitly teach that God himself is the source of the hard things. That God is himself the hardest thing. The hard one. Which is why I didn't start with this verse today. Full disclosure. Because although some will teach and understand God's sovereignty to mean that God designs, plans, purposes, and wills everything that happens to us in our lives, that everything that happens in our lives and will is, is brought about by the will of God, the Lord's prayer alone taught to us by who? Jesus. God himself, the eternal son, the second person of the eternal trinity, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer teaches us otherwise. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray for what? For God's will to be done. Which means that not all things that happen in this world, not all things that are happening in Moldova right now, in the Ukraine right now, and here in our city and in our land and in our lives, are according to the will of God. Not all that happens in us and to us and in our world is God's will for us. If God's will is already being done in all things, then this is not a prayer that we need to pray. But Jesus thinks it is. Which means that there are things that happen in our lives and our world that are not God's will. And yet, according to Romans 8, verse 28, in the mercy and mystery of God's sovereign grace, we are invited to trust that the crucified one our God who has suffered for us can and will use even these things. All things. All things. All things. What a grace to know that God can and does use not just our worship and our prayer and our obedience and our devotions, but also our suffering and our grief, our trials, our disappointments, our failures and the failures of others as the means of his work in us. Why? Because he loves us. How do we know? 
because he has suffered for us. The proof is in his wounds. Well, the perfect son of God in all his innocence, here walking in the dirt with you and me, he knows what living is. He's acquainted with our grief, a man of sorrows, son of suffering. Blood and tears, how can it be? There's a God who weeps. There's a God who bleeds. Oh, praise the one who would reach for me, hallelujah, to the son of suffering. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for the cross today. We look to it. We look to you and your cross with gratitude that your cross means that you have done something. Lord, you understand the brokenness of our world better than we ever could. Some of us feel wrecked. You understand the gravity and the consequence of sin and the curse more than we ever could. And in your mercy and grace, your love for all creation, including us, you have come. Not just to proclaim your love to us, but to do something in love, Lord, that will one day mean the undoing of all that is wrong in this world and wrong that it, in us, Lord. And in these days, bit by bit as we follow you, to overturn our sinful hearts and lead us into your righteousness, your mercy, your grace, your holiness, God. We throw ourselves upon you today. And we throw ourselves upon you for one another, Lord. And we ask in your mercy that you would open our hearts to your suffering in a way that would be our comfort in sorrow. And you would make us a people of comfort and compassion for others, Lord. And hope. Not hope to shut down or explain away suffering, but hope to sit with, to grieve with, to weep with others for what is, what has been, as we wait, God, for your kingdom come. Oh, come, Holy Spirit, as we sing.